Another case which has gotten a lot of attention over the last decade or so is the death of copyright. <laughs> that copyright is a way of rewarding creators of intellectual property. In order for it to work, you've got to be able to control copying. That's getting harder and harder, both because digital intellectual property is really cheap and easy to copy, and because the internet makes it very easy to share stuff with strangers, and thus to find the property you want. And the owners of the intellectual property, not surprisingly, are doing their best to enforce the existing law, uh, which it turns out to be very, very hard and may well be uh, counterproductive as well as ultimately a failure. Uh, but I think what you really ought to be doing is saying, in a world where you can't enforce copyright law, how do you get creators rewarded for their, their creation? And one intriguing solution is technological protection, to find some ways of making your intellectual property available that can't be copied. And there have been various proposals. And the problem is that for most intellectual property, that's impossible. Uh, that you want to think of all intellectual property as divided into two categories. Things that are fully revealed on one use, like a song or a novel, and things that are not fully revealed on one use, like a database, where a use is a query. The first category cannot be technologically protected, because however good the encryption you've got your song locked up in, all I have to do is to pay you the cost of playing the song once and have a tape recorder sitting next to the speaker when I do it. That's what's referred to as the analog hole. There are more elegant ways of doing it, but the basic point is once it's revealed, it's revealed. On the other hand, Lexus or Westlaw could uh, be uh, technologically protected because all they give you is the answer to one query and none of your friends want the answer to the same query uh, you just made. Uh, for a while, I was trying to think up some improvement to the movie that wouldn't be fully revealed in one use. And I had various crazy ideas that wouldn't work. And then it eventually occurred to me that I and all members of my family were spending hours a week consuming a form of intellectual property that is a substitute for the movie and is not fully revealed in one use. It's called World of Warcraft. If you think about online, multi, uh, many player, multiplied, many, what, what MMORG anyway, uh, multiplayer, uh, massively multiplayer online role-playing games, and things like that, that they are things like movies, I can film my adventure in Worlds of Warcraft if I like, but none of my friends want to see my adventure. They want to have their adventure. So one prediction I make is that resources will increasingly go into things like World of Warcraft and out of things like movies because you can, in fact, control who uses and thus get paid for, for making available World of Warcraft. And in the not very distant future, once you've released one copy of a movie, you're finished because anybody who wants is going to be able to copy it. So one solution is technological protection for those things that can be protected. Uh, another solution is tie-ins of various sorts. When the Macintosh first came out, as you may remember, it had with it a fine word processor called McWrite and a paint program called McPaint, both of them very innovative and, and useful programs, both of them free. They weren't copy protected. You could make as many copies as you would like, but they would only run on Macintosh computers and therefore giving them away increased the ability of Apple to make money by selling computers. Uh, similarly, uh, you can give away your songs as MP3s, charge for tickets to the concert. And similarly, uh, the book I'm discussing at the moment is on the, the uh, World Wide Web. 
all of it, indeed a slightly improved version because I've got more footnotes because links are cheap online. Don't take any paper. Uh, why do I do that? And I do it for two reasons. The reason that I would use if I wanted to persuade my publisher, as it happens I have the online rights to the book so I can do what I please, is that it sells hard copies of the book. Because the wonderful thing about the webbed version of a book is that you can find it without knowing it's there. So that someone is doing a Google search for some topic I cover in the book, they come across the book, they read a bit of it. At this point, most people don't want to read books online, entire books, so they buy the book. But the second reason is that I'm really in the business of writing books to spread ideas, not mainly to make money. And my target for the webbed version of that book isn't you people. You can, you can buy a copy. It's the Chinese student with an IQ of 190 uh, who's 17 years old, has no access to books like this, is in China exploring the world. And I want to make sure that when he's a 30-year-old changing the world, he's changing it in my direction. All right? So that's the secret program of why essentially everything I produce is webbed, except when my publishers won't let me web it. Let me give you a different example where, again, the technology makes things both harder and easier. And that's the issue of defamation, slander, and libel. If somebody publishes law, damaging lies about me, the standard solution is to sue them. That doesn't work if people can publish lies where many people will see them without either revealing their identity or, if they are identified, having enough assets to be worth suing. But since anybody can set up a web page, and anybody can clever can probably set up a web page without revealing his identity, and web pages can be seen by the whole world, that means that the standard method of using lawsuits to prevent defamation is becoming unworkable. There is another way of preventing defamation, and that's when people tell lies, answer them. And the technology is much better for that. My poster child is a bit of the internet called, the, called Usenet that some of you uh, know and others don't, uh, which consists of about 100,000 bulletin boards. They look like bulletin boards, each a conversation on some topic. Google provides a search engine for Usenet as well as for the web. What that means is that every day I can, if I wish, and I often do, spend 30 seconds asking Google whether anyone in the world on any of 100,000 news groups has mentioned my name today. And if they have, I can go see what they said, and if I don't like it, and if it's really me and not some imposter who happens to have the same name, uh, I can write a response, and the response will appear in the same thread on the same news group to be read by essentially everybody who saw the original. So it's as if I was sitting on a hill and the winds of the world blew to my ears, any mention of my name, and then blew back my response to whoever heard it. Just a wonderful technology. Now, doing that on the web is harder, and I discussed in the book how you could uh, set up improved browsers to do it and what might prevent it, but I have limited time, so I'm not going to go through it. But the basic point I'm making here, again, is that instead of thinking about how do I stop what they're doing, you say, how do I solve my problem using things that have gotten easier instead of harder? In addition to changing what we can do, technological change also changes some of the facts that on which our description of the world depends, that we all describe the world by approximations. We think by approximations. We write by approximations. We make laws by approximations. It says on the news that the temperature is 83 degrees in the shade. Which patch of shade? close enough to the same, we don't care. We're acting as if. We all take it for granted that every human being is either male or female. 
that is becoming less and less defensible thesis as we know more and more. It turns out there are people who are genetically of one gender and phys physically of the other. There are people who are genetically of neither gender, XXYs and things like that. There are people who are genetically and physically of one gender but claim to be, persuasively claim to be psychologically of the other. So that particular set of approximations breaks down. Let me take, however, a clearer case of the breakdown. We usually take it for granted that the term mother is well-defined. Right? It isn't. There was indeed a law case in California a few years ago involving an infant with five parents. Uh, you started out with a couple who wanted a child. The husband was sterile. The wife was doubly infertile. She could neither produce a live egg nor bring a fetus to term. That's what the market is for. They, they hired a sperm donor, an egg donor, and a host mother, and they produced a baby. Wonderful. Triumph of modern technology. Unfortunately, at about the time the baby was born, the couple broke up. And the California courts then had to decide who were the legal parents of that baby, who had the rights and responsibilities. And I think it is pretty clear if you do what many people you should say, say you should do and just apply the law as written, that the answer is that the host mother was the mother and her husband was the father. Uh, any lawyers in the room may know about Lord Mansfield's rule, rule which is why the, the husband was the father. Uh, the court, I think, sensibly instead interpreted parenthood by intention, held that couple to be parents. But of course, there's no guarantee that the next time that there will be a couple. Maybe the next time it's going to be Microsoft trying to produce the heir to Bill Gates by cloning. Uh, you could imagine a variety of other things, and you're going to have to have a legal system and a social system, which takes account of the fact that we've now got more ways of producing babies than we used to. Uh, let me take another one of the approximations we all take for granted, and that is that everybody is either alive or dead. All right. There are something over 100 people at the moment who arguably are neither. Uh, how do they get that way? Well, you're dying of an incurable disease, and you're a technological optimist. So what do you do? You arrange that one second after you're declared legally dead, when nothing has started to rot yet, your body is lowered to the temperature of liquid nitrogen, taking precautions to minimize but not eliminate the damage done by freezing you. And it's held in storage until two things happen. The easy one is finding a cure for your incurable disease. The hard one is finding a cure for being frozen. <laughs> but if you're a technological optimist, you figure with luck those will both happen eventually. And after all, if you think the odds are bad, consider the alternative. Uh, this is called cryonic suspension. More than 100 people have done it. And the question is, what is their legal status? And I like to illustrate this by imagining that it happens to me. So my wife is a widow, because I've been declared legally dead, so she remarries. Uh, my heirs inherit, because I'm legally dead. And 10 years later, due to unusually fast technological progress, it is announced that they have thawed a dog, and he barked. And it's obvious that pretty soon they'll be bringing back human beings. And a week later, my uh, widow's new husband and my heirs break into the storage facilities at Alcor and smash the container holding my body. And when asked to explain this act of blatant vandalism, they say that they apologize, they will be happy to replace the storage container and compensate Alcor, but they could not stand having someone they loved maintained in such a parody of life. What crime have they committed? Vandalism. What crime have they not committed? Murder, because I'm already legally dead. Right? 
So that nicely demonstrates why you would likely, at least if you believe there's a significant chance of reviving such people, why you would like the legal system and our ways of thinking. Think about the question, should he have married my widow? Uh, was she a widow or a wife? Should she have felt free to marry? All of that you're going to have to, to, to revive. Uh, Second problem, and this was actually a real-world problem, is suppose you're dying, and this time the disease you're dying of is brain cancer, and by the time you're legally dead, there's going to be nothing left to revive. So you decide you'd rather be frozen right now, thank you. Uh, and you go to a California court, and you ask them for a declaration that freezing you is not murder, it's just a very risky medical procedure, and the court says no. Real case, except that fortunately they ha he went into remission, so I think he's still alive. Uh, all right, those are, I think, examples uh, of the ways in which it changes uh, the world. Let me run through some of my specifics. And I want to start with technologies which are associated with privacy, something people worry about a good deal. And there are two big ones which pull in opposite directions. The first one is encryption. And uh, so probably some of you actually know about public key encryption. A lot of people don't. I don't have time to go into the details. You can find at least some of it in the book. But basically, we now know how to do encryption in such a way that you can send a message to a stranger that only he can read. And we also know how to do it in such a way that you can send a message to a stranger that proves that the message is from you. And the you it can be from doesn't have to be a real space identity. It can be a cyberspace identity. I can, if I want to give legal advice illegally because I'm not a member of the California bar, I can set up a website for Legal Eagle Online, give away advice, assuming I was competent to do it, until I establish my reputation, sell advice, and when I sell the advice, prove that it's Legal Eagle Online who's giving this advice. That's what digital signatures do. That means we are going to have a future where it is possible to combine anonymity and reputation. And in some ways, that's wonderful. It means freedom of speech no longer depends on the views of the Supreme Court, only on the laws of mathematics, because it's real hard to sh convict anybody of a crime if you don't know who he is, uh, or what continent he's on, or whether he's male or female, old or young. There's no way of getting a bullet through a T1 line. So that what this gives you is, in a certain way, a libertarian paradise, a world where in cyberspace, instead of force and fraud, we have only fraud. And fraud, if you're careful, you can protect yourself against. Uh, it has some downsides, though, because one of the things it means is criminal firms with brand name reputations. And I work through in the book my business plan for Murder Incorporated, which sells the services of hitmen and which, thanks to this new technology, is not limited to customers who are already in the criminal market, but you and I can use their services, too. Uh, so I go through that in, in, in some detail, but I'm short on time, so I'm not going to. Uh, the other technology going in the other direction is surveillance. Uh, there's more of it in the UK than in the US. The basic idea is you put video cameras on poles in public places, and then if there's a mugging, you've got the evidence on who did it. And on the face of it, it sounds like a useful and harmless technology. It's just like having a cop standing there watching, except that he can do his watching sitting down and out of the rain. The problem comes when you add two more technologies. One of them is face recognition, and the other one is databases. And face recognition means that now those aren't just films you have to look through. 
Uh, now, when the prosecutor, who's a little bit about, out of date, says to the defendant, where were you at 3 p.m. on Friday the 17th? Oops, I'm sorry, I don't have to ask that question. Types a little bit into the computer. There is the film showing you where you were at 3 p.m. on Friday the 17th. Because we now have films, we now have videos of everything that happened in a public place and maybe private places pretty soon because the video cameras are getting smaller and more mobile and pretty soon we'll have them down to the size and the characteristics of a mosquito. Uh, and uh, all of that is now on the record, searchable, findable. So it gives you uh, sort of a universal, uh, uh, what was uh, Bentham's prison? Uh, somebody, panopticon, right. It gives you a universal panopticon for the world, which is not a really happy idea. And David Brin has a book discussing this. His solution is, well, the cops can watch us, but we can watch them, to which my reply is they can arrest us and we can't arrest them. Uh, there are certain asymmetries in that relationship. So the interesting question then is, what if we get both? What if we get both widespread use of public key encryption, what I call a world of strong privacy, and widespread use of surveillance with the appropriate, with inappropriate, unfortunate technologies linked to it? Do we then have a very private or a very public world? And that depends on two things. The first is, can I control my interface with cyberspace? It does no good to have strong encryption if while I'm typing, there's a video mosquito watching my fingers. All right? So we need some way of interacting with cyberspace not observable in real space, and you can imagine different ways. Second question is how much of what matters happens in cyberspace and how much in real space? And uh, in my chapter on virtual reality, I suggest possible futures in which essentially everything that matters is in cyberspace. Your body is just lying in a cubicle, you know, pushing against resistance things for purposes of health, being fed soybean mush that tastes to you like sushi and Baskin-Robbins ice cream because with good enough virtual reality, full sense virtual reality, all senses we can synthesize as it were. And in that world, I don't care if there's a video mosquito watching my body lying in this cell pedaling a, uh, a bicycle, essentially, because that's not what's happening. What's happening is me in cyberspace conspiring against the government or doing whatever thing I'm doing that I'm worried about they're knowing about. Let me go on to biotech. Uh, and I want to start out with, with what I call libertarian eugenics, which I attribute to Robert Heinlein in one of his least successful novels, but one of his most interesting novels, Beyond This Horizon. It was an early novel. And the idea is that what's wrong with eugenics is that eugenics generally involves my deciding whether you can have babies. And you're not allowed to have babies because I don't like your genes, and you've got to have babies because I like yours. Heinlein's system was a technology that each couple decide which of the babies they could have they did have. Because after all, any given couple, there are an enormous number of different ways their genes could be combined. And he worked out, I think, a reasonably plausible and perhaps in the not very distant future doable technology by which you can pick the sperm that doesn't have my genes for a bad heart but does have my mathematical ability, the egg that doesn't have my wife's poor circulation but does have her musical ability, combine the two and produce the ideal child. Now, it's true, we've already done it several times by pure chance, but uh, this way the other people could do it too. Uh, next bit of biotech. Uh, it may have occurred to you that everyone in this room is dying of an incurable and always lethal disease. We call it aging. Uh, given the rate of technological progress over the past century, I think there is no reason to believe it will remain incurable. 
And you then have the very interesting question, if we can stop aging, perhaps even reverse aging, what, how does that affect the world? And the interesting question at the individual level, if you knew that you weren't going to get any older, maybe even if you would go back to, you know, whatever you think is the ideal, 30 or something, uh, how would you live your life? Would you just keep doing whatever you're doing? Would you try to make enough money to retire and then play forever? Would you switch careers every 50 years or so? That's an interesting question. Uh, another bit of biotech that is interesting, hopeful, and scary is the category of what I call mind drugs. That as we get to learn more and more about how the human mind works, we are going to be better and better at making drugs that affect the human mind. And there are at least three interesting categories. One of them is pleasure or happiness drugs, most of which are now illegal, a few exceptions. Uh, and if you believe that pleasure is superficial, make it happiness. It's pretty clear that some people you know are naturally happier than others. Uh, I can think of examples. Very likely that's just brain chemistry, so maybe we can fix it. Uh, the second category is performance drugs, ways of making us better able to do things with our mind. And the third category is control drugs, ways of making us better able to control other people. And that, of course, is the scary one, that there is no good reason to think that we won't have credulity drugs, for example, uh, which you feed to somebody just before a business negotiation or an attempted seduction. Uh, and, I mean, that's, of course, an old one. You could argue that alcohol has been used that way for a long time, but we may have much improved versions. Uh, so that's an interesting thing to think about. Let me go on to what's, in some ways, certainly one of the most radical and interesting technologies, and that's nanotechnology. And the basic idea, some of you are familiar with it, uh, is that all the things we build, like this little computer I'm reading my lecture notes off of, uh, are built very crudely, the individual pieces of some crude object like a, a microchip. Uh, the individual pieces have enormous numbers of atoms in them. All right? We ourselves are engineered at the atomic scale. An enzyme, a DNA strand, is essentially a molecular machine. And Feynman proposed decades ago, and Eric Drexler has expanded on it in great detail, what you could do if we learned to engineer at the atomic scale, to build machines whose working parts were assembled from single atoms. And on the one hand, there are some very nice things you can do. For example, one person came up with a design for an improved red blood cell. It's basically a compressed oxygen tank, the size of a red blood cell. And it works out that if you inject enough of them into your bloodstream, so they're 1% or 2% of your red blood cells, and you then have a heart attack uh, a little bit later, uh, you call up your doctor and you make an appointment because you've got two or three hours' worth of oxygen sitting in your bloodstream. It doesn't have to move. All right. Uh, the improved version, however, is the cell repair machine. This is a, sub, a robot submarine much smaller than a human cell, and it just goes through your body fixing everything that's wrong. One solution to aging, among other things. Uh, now, we take a long time with one cell repair machine, but you're not limited to one. Because one of the really neat things about nanotech, once you can do it, is that you can create a general purpose assembler. And this is a little molecular factory designed to take instructions and follow them for building molecular machines. From its standpoint, the world is a whole lot of Legos, carbon atoms, nitrogen atoms. They're all the same, pretty much, hydrogen. Just plug them together according to the instructions, and you've got whatever you want. Furthermore, one of the things a general purpose assembler can build is a general purpose assembler. So now I have two of them. 
And one of the things two general purpose assemblers can build is two general purpose assemblers. So very soon you have as many as you want. Uh, and that means that you get a million robot submarines to go through your cells instead of one. It also means that in principle, if you can solve the design problems, you can make very large machines designed at the molecular level or at the atomic level. That uh, with a few modifications, Diamond would make quite nice windscreens, windshields for cars. It's very hard. Diamond's just carbon. Carbon's cheap. So in the fully developed nanotech world, you download instructions for building a car, and you're going to need a very broad bandwidth uh, system to download them because the instructions are going to be very, very long. You dig a pit, you, you use them to program some, a whole lot of assemblers. You dig a pit in your backyard, making sure there's enough dirt to provide the aluminum, because dirt's largely aluminum. You dump in a cup and a half of gasoline to have something that the assemblers can disassemble to get the energy for doing everything. You go to bed, and in the morning, there's your car. Uh, now, you may say that's unbelievable, that that's obviously impossible, but how do you think oak trees get built? All right, they start out with instructions and assemblers built into the acorn. They get their power from the sunlight. They're slower than my version, but the basic principle is the same because living systems are nanotech. They're the demonstration we can do it. All this is, sounds very nice, but there's a downside to nanotech. And the downside comes when somebody, either deliberately or accidentally, makes a much simpler nano device than a general purpose assembler. It only has one purpose in life, which is making copies of itself. And it uses commonly available elements. It uses sunlight to, to fuel it. And the rough estimate is that it takes about a week to turn the entire biosphere into copies of it. This is what we refer to in the literature as the gray goo scenario, because the entire world has been turned into gray goo. And it's scary enough so that some people, such as Eric Drexler, who are basically libertarians, still think maybe there's a case for government regulation to prevent things along those lines. You could also imagine uh, designer plagues, essentially, at the nanotech level. Uh, I'm not persuaded, and I'm not persuaded because as long as it's really hard to do nanotech, it's very unlikely to happen to accident. By accident, it's going to be done by big organizations, which are probably going to take precautions. And the only real danger, then, is the only kind of human organization that devotes large resources to figuring out how to kill people and smash stuff, and that's governments. And there seems a certain problem to giving governments a monopoly over nanotech in that world. And as nanotech gets easier, now maybe any really bright high school kid can do it in his basement, but along with the really bright high school kids with not many resources, there are going to be a whole lot of rich firms that are out there trying to make defensive nanotech because human beings really don't want to die. And therefore, in a world of uncontrolled nanotech, what you're going to have are very large resources going into protecting people against nanotech and other dangers. Very small private resources going into destructive nanotech. The only problem is going to be government resources going into destructive nanotech. And you aren't going to solve that problem by giving the government control over nanotech. More generally, I'm worried about centralized solutions. The only time in my life that I've been seriously scared about the literal survival of myself and those dear to me was a little while after 9-11 when I started looking into the subject of smallpox. And I discovered first that it was quite possible that ingenious terrorists could get a hold of smallpox even though it had supposedly been eradicated. That's easy. Get me and my family vaccinated. Sorry, we don't have the vaccine. All right, there was not enough, probably still isn't, maybe there is now, for anything more than doctors and nurses, roughly, and probably cops. Uh, 
And why? Because preventing contagious diseases is a government business, essentially. They control it. They decided the problem was solved, so why keep any spare? So from that standpoint, I think there's a lot to be said for decentralized solutions. All right, let me go on to another technology, which is both promising and scary. That's artificial intelligence. All right. We don't know what we are. It's a very old human puzzle, what human beings are. But our best guess, in my view, is that I am software running on the hardware of my brain. That fits what human beings are better than anything else we can describe. If that's right, as we get better and better at building hardware, we're going to get to the point where we can build programmed computers with human-level intelligence. All right. Uh, Raymond Kurzweil, a fairly important computer pioneer, he's the guy who designed the machines that let blind people read and that let you use computers to make music. Uh, he thinks we've got 30 years. His estimate is in about 30 years we can do human-level AI. And that's sort of exciting. It'll be very interesting. It raises lots of legal problems because these are going to be people very unlike all people we've known, and I discuss that a little in the book. But if computers keep getting faster as rapidly as they have been, and if in 30 years we have human-level AI, then in 40 years we are gerbils. Because in 40 years we are sharing the planet with beings 100 times smarter than we are. All right, that's scary. We hope they like pets. Uh, now, Kurzweil has a solution. I won't go into that again. You'll discover it in the book. Might even work, but it is one of my three ways of wiping out the human race, uh, along with biotech and nanotech. Uh, virtual reality, I've already mentioned briefly. Uh, I would have said that World of Warcraft, again, is our best implementation of virtual reality at the moment, and it demonstrates that we don't really need the high-tech of goggles and all the rest of stuff. All you need is a computer screen, a speaker, and the really high-tech, which is the human imagination. And with that, you can get 10 million people who are living in a different world, interacting with thousands of people, some of them their friends, in a different world uh, that was created by a, basically by artists. Uh, and I can easily imagine futures where a large part of human activity, whether as it does now through computer screens or in a science fiction version where you plug a cable into the back of your neck and you get full sense virtual reality, where a large part of human life is lived that way. And that then raises interesting philosophical questions. Uh, when we have this world where in real space we're all living in cubicles eating soybean mush, and in virtual reality we are all living in mansions, uh, visiting a friend with a thought, we're there, let your fingers do the walking, uh, is that heaven or hell? All right, some of you may know C.S. Lewis in Great Divorce who described something like that and he called it hell. Uh, I'm more ambiguous. I think that for certain purposes it's heaven, for certain purposes it isn't. The critical question is whether you are doing things where it matters whether they're done in real space. That creating food in, wor in, in World of Warcraft doesn't feed anybody. On the other hand, I don't care whether you read my book in real space or on the web because that's an information transaction and information transactions in cyberspace are just as real as elsewhere. All right, I'm getting to the end. Uh, one general conclusion I want you to reach is that the future is radically uncertain in both upside and downside ways, that predicting past maybe 30 or 40 years is pretty hopeless. One of the reasons that I'm against most of the things people want to do about global warming 
is that they depend on extrapolations 100 years out. I don't even know if we're going to be around 100 years from now. And if we are, it is very unlikely that human life will be enough like what it now is to make the calculations we're now making relevant. Uh, one question I end the book with, and I will let you think about it, is are there ways in which we can expect technological progress to make us worse off? Because that's been what everybody has been mistakenly predicting for 200 years, that everybody would be unemployed, that various other bad things. So far, it hasn't been true. Closest we've come to it was nuclear weapons. And I discuss in the book why, although I am not predicting that it will make us worse off, it could make us worse off. Basically, because there is only one known way of solving the coordination problem, of getting hundreds of millions of people to interact in a way in which they all achieve their ends, and that's the decentralized property trade kind of model. That model depends on the effects of most human action being localized enough so that I can keep what I do to my own property or the property of people who have voluntary transactions with me. And as we get more and more powerful, that, that, that assumption may break down. So we may be down from one way of solving the problem to zero, which would be scary. Uh, and I think global warming, by the way, is a good example. As it happens, its scale is pretty small on present evidence, so it's not really much of a catastrophe compared to some of the others. But if it were a catastrophe, there's no good way of stopping it because not only is it a public good problem for individuals, it's a public good problem for nations that from the standpoint of nations, why should I slow my development in order that you not get flooded, basically? And the answer is I won't. You could solve it with a world government. I think that's a cure worse than the disease, uh, but I don't see any other way of doing it. So uh, <clears throat> basically, I think I've, I was trying to cut this one down to about 45 minutes, which is shorter than I usually give the talk uh, on instructions from uh, my friend here. Uh, and I've tried to do that and thus leave us some time for questions. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Please raise your hand. We'll bring a microphone around while the microphone is getting somewhere. Why don't you take it up there? Um, let me ask you a question, David. Is it a good idea to give brilliant young Chinese kids ideas for yes. technologies that could destroy the world? Yes. Yes. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an optimist on the whole. And all, I don't want to die of old age. Maybe other people do, but I don't. And I'd sort of like to be able to see other planets, and uh, I'd like to do lots of things. And I think the attempt to slow technology is likely to do more damage than good. And one of the things that keeps technology from being slowed is if there are multiple places where decisions are being made. And what I like about China is that it's big enough and strong enough so the US can't give it orders. And it's different enough, so they'll try to suppress different things than we'll try to suppress. And between us, unless everybody suppresses something, nobody suppresses something. So from that standpoint, yeah, you know, maybe we'll move to China in 30 years. It's, uh, you know, at the moment, the trend lines are sort of down for us and up for them in a bunch of different dimensions. And I have nothing against China. I like Chinese food. And lots of the China, there are lots of smart, nice Chinese people I've met. So, so yeah, I mean, I'm not a nationalist. Uh, one of the reasons why I thought that McCain was probably even worse than Obama was that he is. Uh, another question? Yep. Hi. Uh, Will Salatin from Slate Magazine. Fascinating talk. A um, hundred interesting ideas. Let me ask you about a possible uh, contradiction between, you've probably heard this a hundred times, between two of the themes in your talk. One is the optimism, the other is the uncertainty. And, will, and the question is, 
theoretically, the question is, will uncertainty overwhelm the optimism? And specifically, I I'd like you to address the problem of causal complexity or side effects. Uh, let's take the example of biotechnology. You talked about drugs, and you gave three categories. One was for pleasure, the other was performance, and the third was control. Aren't we seeing already with things like Vioxx the, the problem of the biological complexity of causation and side effects are the manifestation of it? Um, in the case of drug, I mean, psychedelic drugs, performance-enhancing drugs, uh, neuro even just aphrodisiacs in the case of control drugs, that every time, in practice, whenever we try to do drugs to do some cool new thing, we are finding side effects we hadn't anticipated, and at every turn, we're running into them. Uh, how are we going to surmount that? Yeah. Well, of course, the net effect, nonetheless, is that we are better off, not worse off. Uh, marijuana does less damage to people than alcohol. Uh, that medical drugs may have some side effects, but we live longer than we did before. Uh, we've gotten enormous gains. Uh, I think it's a mistake to believe you can play safe. That, you know, they, they talk about uh, the precautionary principle. And I like to claim, slightly exaggerating, that the precautionary principle is the chief cause of global warming. Because the precautionary principle, not under that language, is the reason we don't have a lot of nuclear reactors. And nuclear reactors are the one power source that we, that we now have. Current technology can expand as much as we like uh, that doesn't produce CO2. Uh, that's one example. The point I'm really making is that not doing things is a choice, too. And the consequence of not doing things is complex. And I think it's a mistake to imagine the world is under control. The world has never been under control because even if you believe that human beings collectively could control things, human beings aren't a collective. They're 8 billion separate individuals. And so I think the way to think about it is not how do we want to decide the world will go, but as best we can, how is the world going? Maybe I, as an individual, can tweak it a little bit, but not very much. Given that it's going that way, how do we, how do we live in it? So, you know, I think if you look at all of these things, you know, psychedelics did not destroy people. The, the only people I know personally who I am reasonably sure consumed lots and lots of them, uh, one of them is still one of the smarter people I know. A uh, little bit weird, but he was probably a little bit weird to start. Uh, and I gather that uh, Freud did pretty well despite using a currently illegal drug in considerable quantities. Uh, so aphrodisiacs are an interesting case. I sort of uh, discuss a little bit the fact that there currently exist kits for detecting date rape drugs. So you just drop a drop from your drink onto this thing, and if it turns the wrong color, you decide you really want to be somewhere else. Uh, and I mentioned the possibility if we have credulity drugs, maybe we'll also have a little nanotech uh, device in your arm which is sampling your bloodstream to see what's there. And a contract isn't binding unless you've got a printout of the uh, bloodstream analysis of both parties to go along with the contract. Uh, alternatively, of course, if I'm doing my contracting in cyberspace, you can't feed me a drug over, over an Ethernet cable. Uh, so maybe that's may, maybe you will end up with a world where real space connections, people take precautions and, you know, can't make binding contracts in them and so forth. And it's only when you're home and you're sure everything is worn off uh, that you get to actually make sense. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, and really, from my standpoint, a lot of the fun is in trying to think about the possibilities, uh, not in giving, in giving any single answer. But, but I don't think it's true so far, at least. As I say, the closest thing was nuclear weapons, and that that was a case where it might have turned out 
the technological progress made us drastically worse off, but it didn't. Uh, and all the others, as far as I can tell, I don't think the world is any worse off because LSD was invented. Uh, you, some people would argue it was worse off because the pill was invented. Uh, you can certainly make arguments saying that sort of breakdown of marital structures came because you had a really reliable, easy contraceptive. And then there are also huge benefits from that. Uh, so I'm not sure that we're worse off for that one either. Uh, but in general, it seems to me medical progress has been pretty unambiguous on net good, although, of course, there are always some downsides. But the world's a risky place. All right, let's have, take a question here and then one back in the corner there. Ken Dillon, Ciencia Press. Uh, on the point of the smallpox, my understanding is the U.S. government has produced and stocked 300 million uh, um, copies. As of when? Recently. That I could believe. Took, that I could oh, believe. It took them years to do it, and it was extremely expensive, but they did it. Yeah. That's my understanding from the yeah. Judith Miller article. That no, no that's, that's probably right, but I was describing the situation a little after 9-11, right. which was when I wanted to get vaccinated and couldn't. <laughs> right. But let's go to 2001, yeah. and it's a test case, the anthrax mailings. Yes. Now, what was the appropriate response? We know the response that the U.S. government made, which was to develop all these biodefense laboratories, mm. teaching thousands and thousands of scientists mm. how to fiddle around with all these things. What might we have done different and how it might... I just don't know enough about it. I try, I, I, I try to follow a policy of not talking about things I don't know about. I realize it's a sort of a radical policy uh, to follow. Uh, and, but, but the answer is, you know, in, in a world where government was less involved, presumably there would have been substantial private incentives for firms to try to make available protection to people. But I don't know in any detail how it should have been done or who, who should have done it or what. Uh, Uh, Harold Felt, Media Access Project. Um, uh, two questions, uh, if I may. One is I'm, I'm curious on the question of the, you talk about controlling the interface uh, with cyberspace as a matter of, of privacy. Um, I'm curious about, uh, number uh, whether you think that there is an opportunity under existing law, perhaps, uh, to extend the right of publicity uh, or the right of, uh, uh, you know, some states have these uh, rights. Usually they've applied to celebrities and others, but, you know, is there a, uh, perhaps a, a tort solution where we would have a personal right of uh, uh, publicity where I could control uh, the image or sue people uh, for uh, taking my image in a public place because I should be able to control that. Uh, the other one is uh, uh, with regard to your nanotechnology and why it shouldn't be uh, regulated, uh, I would ask, does the Internet provide a counterexample, which is to say we started with this very open, decentralized, deregulated, and it turns out to be ridiculously easy to produce uh, the uh, uh, viruses and destructive uh, elements, they propagate very quickly. Uh, private solutions are in a constant uh, struggle to keep up. It, it imposes huge expense. Um, you know, is that a counter-argument, given that the consequence of being wrong uh, on nanotech is something like gray goo? With regard, with regard to your first point, let me only say two words, sovereign immunity. That is to say, the most serious risk from my standpoint to surveillance is government use of it, and you can't use tort law to control government. We've just seen that even where you have a law which says that private actors are 
liable in tort for doing something and they do it at the request of the government, Congress then passes a law immunizing them, which just happened. Uh, so, so I don't think that's, that's very hopeful. With regard to the Internet, uh, I guess the question – First, my impression is that on net it still works pretty well despite a certain amount of nuisance and that uh, people are in various ways uh, dealing with it. And it's hard for me to see that a centralized solution would have worked better given that sort of a lot of what made, what's made it such a spectacular success is its decentralized nature. The fact that I can put stuff up on a web page without asking anybody's permission other than finding some private firm that will, will set it up. So uh, – I don't know what a good centralized solution. I guess maybe we'll find out with France or China or someplace where they're trying to regulate it more. But I'll be surprised if they manage to, to, to prevent viruses there. But what is true, going back to, your, to that example, is that a lot depends on the balance between offensive and defensive technology. And I guess my view is that offensive technology has a big enough advantage over defense, then it's very hard to prevent bad things from happening in any way. Uh, and that the range where I think you've got a reasonable hope is when the offense is not much cheaper than the defense, and then because defense is more valuable, you're likely to get more of it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, whoever, whoever's handling this. Thank you. Uh, Nicholas R. Brown from the Heritage Foundation. I'm um, curious, you're obviously a proponent of future technology and innovation. I'm, I'm curious if you have an opinion on uh, proposed network neutrality uh, regulatory policy and how it may affect innovation on the Internet in the future. Yeah. No, network neutrality is very interesting. I write long letters to Larry Lessig when he publishes books. Uh, trying to persuade him of various things. And when he was arguing for that, what I tried to persuade him of was that he had just come out against zoning laws. That is to say, if you think about property and law of nuisance and stuff like that, you really have a trade-off that on the one hand, things I do on my own property can impose costs on my neighbors. And that's a reason why you might want zoning laws or common law of nuisance or ways of preventing it. On the other hand, the more you have such laws, the harder it is to innovate because there are lots of people in a position to block what you want to do. You have to pay them all off or negotiate with all of them. And that's basically Larry's argument on, on network neutrality, which is that it's clear that ways in which I use the network can impose costs on other people. If I am sending lots and lots of stuff across your cable, that slows down everybody else. But at the same time, the more people are in a blocking position, uh, the harder it is to do new things. So I can't see any principled argument for network neutrality. I can see, you know, it seems to me it's sort of a trade-off between, on the one hand, there are perfectly good reasons why somebody selling communication over the Internet would want to discriminate among users. That you want, there are going to be a few users who have uses where very fast response is critical. And the two obvious examples of that are telesurgery and very fast video games. Uh, there are going to be many other users for whom a delay of half a second doesn't matter. If you're watching a movie, they, you, can, you can be buffered by more than half a second. And there are going to be other users for whom a delay of a minute doesn't matter. They're downloading a book, so it takes a minute longer. Ideally, with a world of no transaction costs, you'd like to charge different prices for providing those different services, that the fact that you don't mind being pushed back, like wait list um, for airlines, the fact that you want my transmission but don't care if you're a second late means I can guarantee him that he gets priority when he's got an open heart surgery going on. 
so that's the argument against net neutrality. That's why I can't be an enthusiastic supporter. At the same time, I think it's true that one of the attractions of the Internet is you and I can do stuff without talking to the people in between us, and that makes it easier to do new and interesting stuff. So I've been trying to persuade Larry that he's a libertarian for, I don't know, 10 years or something. Anyway. Here and then in the fourth row. Hi, Arnold Kling, and my basic question is whether you think that the contest between control and liberty will be settled technologically or culturally, and my own concern is that it will be cultural because if you want to enjoy the benefits of the network of those who value control, <coughs> you will not have much choice. I'm thinking just, you know, if you wanted to escape... Uh, you know, sort of the U.S. government in control now, you'd have to escape the financial system, which would mean escaping a network uh, that provides a lot of benefits. Yeah, that's interesting. Of course, yours is the optimistic answer. It's the optimistic answer because technology is going to be the same everywhere and culture is different in different places. So if what determines freedom is culture, then it's likely there are always places you can go where you can be free. If what determines freedom is technology... If they develop really good mind control drugs, for example, everybody's going to have it, no place to run. All right. So, but I don't know. That is, I, I'm looking at the technology here. Uh, in other contexts, uh, I'm looking at culture. But, but here I'm looking at the technology. But I think I would agree. In fact, I've been saying for a long time that one of the things that's going to be really interesting about the 21st century is watching the other great civilizations come back online that there is a sense in which for the last couple of hundred years, and it started to break down early in the 20th century, everything that mattered was European civilization in America or Australia or Europe. And the first exception was Japan, that when the Japanese won the Battle of Tsushima Straits, it was sort of a signal that you had a non-Western civilization which was beginning to matter again, that it sort of caught up. China is now, has now come back online, so to speak. Uh, if we're really lucky, Persia will. Uh, when they get tired of their present uh, messes. Uh, India is. And my guess, thinking not about the technology, but sort of about culture and economics, is that it'll all be different. That it will turn out that even if they're all free market, basically free market societies, which for all I know they will be, they'll be very different free market societies. And you could imagine a free market society where extended families had enormous control over their members, which is what traditional China was. You could imagine a free market society with something close to a caste system, maybe not legally enforced, but where there are pretty sharp divisions and some kind of internal, you know, Nash equilibrium that maintains them. You can imagine a lot of different things. And if it's culture that determines it, we're going to see all of them. And that's going to be interesting. And as I say, it'll mean you have options if you're willing to move, at least, as to what you do. And if technology determines it, either we're all free or we're all slaves, basically. And then let's bring one down here. May I ask a question? Huh? Go ahead. Uh, well, your premise is that technological linear progress will just continue, and we have market signals that we have reached some boundaries, ecological overshoot of more than 30%. You know, energy is going out. So the problem is not on the impact side, the global warming. It's on the input side, which will kind of disturb this laboratory of technomoronics. So, you know, I, did, I think that, uh, you know, it's unfair and dishonest premise that we will just continue accelerating this kind of manic macho brain logic. You know, women will react, biology will react versus this 
that hit his strength. I'm C.S. Lewis and the rest, you know. But the, so how how about technology that allowed the proper step down into survivable in resolution between freedom and control, which is called love, which is voluntary control. So the problem with all of this talk about sustainability and survivability is that it assumes the static hypothesis, namely that we'll keep doing about the same things. Uh, as far as technological progress, not all technologies use a lot of energy. I don't know if energy is going to be cheaper or more expensive. That solar power has been getting cheaper. Uh, fossil fuels have been getting more expensive. Uh, and I think that sort of confident belief that you can predict it uh, is not justified in either direction. But even if power gets a lot more expensive, virtual reality is a way of saving power. Phone calls are a lot cheaper than airplane flights. Uh, and similarly, mine drugs, if mine drugs happen, don't depend on power. So I think that basically we know a whole lot more than we did before, uh, and we're going to keep learning more and more. Knowledge accumulates. Uh, and therefore, I think that I don't know which technologies will develop, but I think that we have good reason to expect that there will be technological progress in various directions over the continuing for mo at least the next three decades, which is what I mostly limit myself to in the book. I should mention, by the way, the book also discusses space travel, but that's really the one where I'm going past, past three decades. Let me, by the way, before this ends, mention that I have one question for you, which is whether anybody in this room happens to be driving to Charlottesville this afternoon, because I'm supposed to be there this evening. And there don't seem to be any very convenient ways of getting there. And on the whole, a couple of hours of conversation would be more pleasant than either a Greyhound bus or renting a car and driving by myself. So if anybody is driving to Charlottesville after this is over, come tell me and see if I can hit your ride. Now, do you have more questions? Uh, I'm Greg Page with the Justice Department. Um, I was thinking back as you were talking about China, uh, some of the experience of uh, libertarians I know at Cato watching the Olympics. And um, as we were watching, here we're from a society that sort of culturally and constitutionally honors the consent of the government. And you look at this society, here it is a totalitarian state. And what I was struck with, um, they were allowing us to see uh, the society at their, you know, at their, at their greatest. They had um, used their resources and given us a spectacle. But what I was struck with was the brazenness of the eavesdropping that was going on in cabs as journalists were going back and forth. They look behind them. They see that they were being taped or eavesdropped. And that's not just traditional eavesdropping, but also using cyberspace. We don't have to talk about Google and, their, and some of what they did mm -hmm. to, uh, as a, a consequence of selling in the Chinese market. And what I wanted to ask you is, is do you have any kind of reason or um, in your own musing about the Chinese totalitarian state? Is there any basis for believing that this technological change would empower the in person that is imprisoned uh, any faster than the jailer. Because sometimes when I look at this state, it looks like they love wealth, they love technology, but they're simply using it to expand their control of intellectuals and people that could oppose a perpetuating government, perpetual government. I would have said that as far as I can tell, China has a good deal less control than it did 30 years ago, not more. And part of the reason, which goes back to sort of general market arguments, is that it's really hard to do central planning well. And therefore, even if they're trying to, it's hard to, to really control things. Uh, but I think it is true that you don't have any guarantee that technology is on the side of, of, of good, that technology is, is a blind force and it does good things, it does bad things. You have to try to say, well, here is what's happening. How do we, how, how do we navigate that? Uh, but for a moment... One of uh, my next book may be on legal systems very different from ours. I've got a seminar on that. And one of the things I've read up on is imperial China, the previous system. 
And it was a very weird and interesting system and bad in some ways, good in others. One of the things we like to offer as an example of how evil totalitarian societies are is that they force children to inform on their parents. In imperial China, for a child to accuse his parent of a crime the parent was guilty of was a criminal offense. All right? So that was a society which at the same time that a lot of our freedoms they didn't take at all seriously. You could torture witnesses to make sure they told the truth, for example. On the other hand, they took very seriously the independent authority of the extended family because they were running 100 million people with a tiny elite bureaucracy and they subcontracted the job, basically. Uh, and so that sort of is an interesting case. So as I say, I think, I think a basic... My guess is that China will keep moving towards more of a free market society. It might be a free market dictatorship. That's not impossible. Singapore gives us a smoothly working example of essentially a free market dictatorship. Uh, well, less free, le a good deal less free market, I think, than, than, than Singapore. But, but, but my point is only, so I'm not guaranteed, but, but I, th I think that, that, that there are likely to be continued tends towards markets. That increases the difficulty of controlling things because if paper is being allocated on the market, you've got to actually go out there and stop the guy from printing the, paper, the, the newspaper rather than just not getting around to allocating paper to him, uh, which was the Polish system, I gather. Uh, uh, but I think there are going to be lots of different places. And I don't even know if China will hold together. I mean, maybe it'll fall apart. I think it's a wonder that India has held together this long. Uh, so I don't, I'm not strong on prophecy, basically, and I suspect China will get both better and worse uh, in different ways, and I hope the net is better, but we will see. Yep. All right, we'll take one last question here. Who are your favorite science fiction authors and why? Huh, that's a good question. I'm an admirer of Heinlein, of course, and I liked Poole Anderson. Uh, I like Werner Vinge, although his last one or two things I basically stopped reading because things were getting very unpleasant. And I know Werner, by the way. And when I commented on this to him, he said, yes, he could write worse things than he could read. Uh, and my guess is that, that you know, the, the bad things are going to get solved, but I, I'm a wimp on that sort of thing. Uh, so I like him because he has interesting ideas. In fact, some of my ideas on, on encryption and privacy ultimately go back to Werner's writings. Uh, other people, uh, I'm very fond of C.J. Cherry, uh, and I'm very fond of Bujold, of sort of modern people. Those are both very good people. Uh, I'm sure I'm missing some other good people, but those would be sort of the ones that immediately occur to me as particularly good writers. Quite a long time ago, I happened to be simultaneously reading one of Asimov's moderate to better ones and one of Heinlein's juveniles. And I was struck with how much better Heinlein stood the rereading than Asimov did. Uh, so I think he really was a pretty impressive guy. You know, he was a little bit nutty like all of us, but, but he was awful smart and awfully creative and awfully interesting. Uh, so I guess those would probably be, be near the top of my list. But there are other people who I, who I read, so that wouldn't be a complete list. All right. Let me thank David Friedman for being here. Let me uh, invite you all up to, uh, for lunch and get a copy of Future Imperfect. Thank you. And, and my web page is www.daviddfriedman.com. So it's easy to remember. It's got lots of stuff on it. <laughs>